Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Program Director of the Integrative Medicine Program here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by Elizabeth Amon, a faculty member engaged in teaching and course development in the Health and Wellness Coaching Program at Maryland University of Integrative Health. A health and wellness coach in private practice in the Washington, D.C. area, she's certified by the International Coach Federation at the professional certified coach level and is a national board certified health and wellness coach through the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching. Dr. Amon has a master's degree in nursing from Pace University and a doctorate in public health from the Johns Hopkins University. She frequently presents at conferences on coaching, writing, research, evidence-based practice, ADHD, and mindfulness. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Amon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What are common barriers to changing one's lifestyle habits? Well, the way I think about it, if we're honest, most of us face challenges in changing any habits, including lifestyle habits. We're all creatures of habit, and it's never really easy to change. My own opinion is that another reason change can be so difficult, particularly these days, is that most of us are way too busy, and we manage our lives in large part kind of out of rote habit and responding to anything that just seems urgent at the moment. So this is a kind of almost mindless and busy way of going through life and itself creates a big barrier to change. In order to change, we need time, thought, planning, and attention. So until we can step back and make that possible for ourselves, it can be hard to change. And then another barrier that's common in terms of difficulty changes, cha- making changes, is that it's um, we often don't understand that there are various phases or stages in the process of change. I, I think often about um, New Year's resolutions, and I might say I want to start exercising, and then you know in January I'll go to the gym a few times, and then a week later. Uh, you know, in the middle of January, I see, oh, I haven't really kept that up. So I feel like I've failed at my resolution. And the problem there is just jumping right into taking action, the action stage of change without really preparing and planning for it. Um, It's a big reason I think many of our plans to change don't survive very long. Um, So taking the stages of change into account, I think, can also make a big difference. That's that's a very helpful way of thinking about things. I actually was just having lunch with one of our faculty members here at GW, and we were talking about how how do you really make sure that something happens, like, for instance, working out every morning. And I was telling her that when I first start a new position, I put these things on my calendar, and so they become part of the rhythm of my life. And people just don't schedule meetings during those times because they know that time is taken. Uh, but other than sh- short of than actually blocking your calendar for something, do you have any other tips about how we can make time for change? Well, I think what you're talking about blocking your calendar, uh, you came to by planning how you would put those habits in place. So and planning is one of the phases of change itself. Hmm. So if I were to think about um, you know, that idea of making a New Year's resolution about jogging, 
Another way I can um, think about it is uh, if I want to exercise what, you know, do some thinking, contemplating, which is an early stage of change. What's the exercise I'm most likely to do? How often can I really do it given my other obligations? Then what resources and supports might I need to put it in place? That can be like you putting it on the calendar or like having the right uh, shoes if I'm going to jog, for example. Mm -hmm. What might get in the way? Like in your case, meetings or for other people working late and not getting to the gym and not having the time to do whatever. Or if you want to put new dietary practices into place, you know, not making the time to cut up the fresh fruits and vegetables rather than, you know, just grab um, some fast food or whatever. So those contemplating and planning steps are really important and necessary parts of being ready to jump into action and making a change. Great. How do you address those barriers and encourage success? Now that we know we have to plan, how do we go about actually doing it? Well, one thing that coaching provides um, a client is time to pause. So so it's about committing some time every week or two to make those plans, stepping away from the other demands on life and devoting time to focus specifically on the behavior change we might want to make. Um, You know, then there's also talking to people about it, gathering information. So all that is part of making time to plan for that change. Um, A lot of health and wellness coaches also invite clients to practice mindfulness, which is an important way to begin noticing um, one's own thoughts and actions in real time. And if we don't have that awareness of the choices we're making from moment to moment, it's hard to change those choices as well. So Mindfulness, um, developing a mindfulness practice is one way to create what I think of as kind of an internal environment in which we can make choice and then change becomes more possible. The other thing I think about barriers is almost more important than that is to understand what our motivators are. So we might think it's a good idea to um, eat a healthier diet, but why does that really matter to us? What do we value? What are our hopes and dreams? What kind of life do we want? I think a good example I often use with people is if they want to quit smoking, for example, everyone knows cigarettes are bad for your health, but that's often not enough of a motivator Mm -hmm. to really get us to move forward to either start or if we start to sustain the effort that we need to quit. Otherwise, nobody would be smoking. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. But if you you link your efforts to something that's really important to you and to your future, let's say um, I thought about quitting smoking and one of my strong values is family. Well, it can help me quit smoking if I frame my smoking cessation as a way to live longer and healthier so that I can be active when I have grandchildren. So my values and visions can then help pull me forward with that change. So thinking about the stage of change, small manageable steps in in line with pulling you toward your vision um, are some important things to consider, I think. How do you help your clients sustain change over time? Well, that's a really good question because it's very true that making a change is not the same as maintaining a change. 
as hard as making a change can be, maintaining a change um, can be equally as hard or harder. And it requires different strategies and skills. So really, there are a number of factors that can assist um, someone who's kind of got a change in place, but really wants to maintain that lifestyle change. First, like you did with your calendar, you want to put some structure and support in place. So you've got the structure of putting your exercise or whatever you're doing on your calendar. And you also then have the support of people around you not um, saying you have to go to meetings during that time. Uh, Another kind of support people can find is connecting with others who are living the lifestyle that they want to adopt. Um, For example, um, if you want to start eating healthier lunches, it's going to work better for you if you change your office buddies that you eat lunch with. So you'll be going, um, sitting down with the people who bring their healthy lunch from home rather than going out for fast food with your previous buddies. So that's kind of a connecting with others who live that lifestyle you want and also arranging your environment to really support that change. There are a couple other factors too. Um, One is, you know, I think about this a lot with exercise, keeping the new behavior interesting. So if you started jogging, for example, over time you might want to switch it up with a different exercise so you won't get bored which could lead to letting go of your desire to exercise regularly. Or you could offer to mentor a new jogger and help someone, you know, learn how to jog safely. So that gives you a different level of investment in the jogging and keeps you motivated. Um, Or join uh, a group of other people who are doing the same kind of activity. So you've got that social support that keeps it interesting as well. And the other thing I think, is really important when you want to um, think about maintaining a change is to recognize that uh, life can really throw us curveballs at times and that can make it hard, you know, to maintain a new behavior. So if you think ahead about what are some likely challenges, um, you can plan around them. And even if you're, you might not foresee all likely challenges, You can come up with um, ideas in advance for if I get off track, you know, what might help me get back on track so that you don't get into that um, sense of failure, but rather just see sort of uh, see it as, um, you know, a little lapse and an opportunity to recommit to the behavior you want, um, the lifestyle change that you want to have in place. So knowing in advance that things will knock us off base and thinking ahead about what makes might make it easier to get uh, you know back on the horse are it are you know important strategies in really being able to maintain the change over the long run. And don't beat yourself up if you fall off the horse. Right, you're not a failure. Exactly, I think that's key. It's really just. Um, It's a lapse and it's an opportunity to get back on the horse and uh, maybe learn a new way of riding. Who knows, right? I like that outlook. Now, what resources do you recommend uh, to your clients for making positive lifestyle changes, resources that are accessible to um, other types of clinicians? Well, the first thing I would have said 
is get a coach or refer your client to a coach. But I'm partly joking there, although partly serious. The the message really, I think, um, that I have in mind there is no one should think that they have to go through uh, making a behavior change or changing a lifestyle all on their own. So besides coaching, there are other ways to support uh, find support that you might need for change, like taking a class to build a skill, taking a cooking class, taking an exercise class, taking a class on uh, managing a chronic illness you might have. Um, or another option for support is joining a relevant support group or club, a walking club or a hiking club. Um, I work with a lot of people with attention deficit disorder, so Finding a group where they can talk to other people who have the same kind of challenges they face is often really supportive. Um, it can even help um, in terms of support to find a buddy who wants to make some kind of lifestyle changes and then discuss your goals together and check in um, regularly on progress. Sometimes in coaching, we'll call that an accountability buddy, somebody who just knows what you're trying to do and who you kind of have to report into um, without getting a finger wagged at you, but sort of help keep yourself on track. So that kind of commitment to someone else or a group, having the support and accountability um, are all helpful kinds of resources um, to support change. Could you go a little bit into how ACA has been a game changer for health coaching? Well, what ACA did was put um, in place incentives for employers and insurance companies to provide um, coaching and um, other kinds of wellness opportunities. So it's provided more, um, whereas a lot of coaches work um, independently as solopreneurs having their own businesses or in small practices, it's created more employment opportunities um, for coaches and is part of expanding um, the field, um, giving more places for health and wellness coaches to um, share what they know about behavior change and support people in, in implementing that. And also expanding access. Uh, do you think enough physicians and PAs, NPs, uh, providers out there that they're aware of the fact that they can have a health coach work with their patients and it will be covered by insurance? Well, right now, um, unless, you know, an employer is specifically covering that benefit or someone has that benefit directly through their insurance company, um, there's not direct reimbursement for a coach. So um, a provider would have to um, either have people pay it um, individually for the coaching or wrap the cost of coaching into their services. But there, uh, many providers who are working with coaches find that actually even wrapping the cost of the coach into the overall services they're providing can be extremely useful in helping people to follow through with um, needed lifestyle changes to prevent a chronic illness or to better manage a chronic illness, or even uh, figuring out how to manage taking multiple medications that may be involved um, with a chronic illness or 
something so that it's really coaching can really help individuals figure out how they can implement whatever changes they need to implement. So it can be a very helpful adjunct to any kind of um, either primary care or specialty care practice. And, and I understand now that there are actually health coaches in some hospitals as well. And I think a great role would be around discharge planning and helping people mm-hmm. make sure they've got all those pieces in place as well. Absolutely. Patients can often be quite overwhelmed when they're being discharged. They might have new medications. They're being told they need to be on a cardiac diet, but maybe they don't know what that is or how to implement that in their lifestyle. That seems like the perfect opportunity for health coaching. And and a health coach uh, could be a good person to bridge that gap, you know, work before discharge and then follow someone you know, over a little bit of time post-discharge to make sure that they have figured out how to put all that in place in a way that works in their life, in their family, and in their, um, you know, larger settings so that they're following through with things and staying healthier. Great. So when you're working with your patients, do you use technology? And do you find the new trend for wearables, apps, and portals helpful or a hindrance? Those are great questions. Um, First, I can say that research really suggests that tracking progress on your goals is a positive predictor of attaining those goals. So some way of tracking progress is important. So that can be um, a tech-oriented approach, or it can be making a check mark in your planner or calendar when you did what you're planning to do. So, you know, there are a wide variety of ways of tracking progress. Um, And when you ask if I use technology in my practice, coaching is really a very client-centered field. So for me, that extends to how a client wants to track their progress, their own progress with their goals. So some of my clients find technology very useful. And you could consider in that regard how popular the Fitbit is and people find it really useful and it has encouraged a lot of people to get all their daily steps in. But some people are less tech oriented and they don't really prefer using wearables or apps. And that's fine too. In fact, um, for a course I'm teaching, I reviewed a 2015 study of physical activity related apps that identified at that point, and I'm sure there are more now, of over 100,000 health-related apps. Wow. few of those were actually designed to be consistent with what we know about behavior change and what we know about physical activity guidelines that were established by the American College of Sports Medicine. So, you know, not every app is really going to be uh, a useful or appropriate app. And then uh, a recent study found that the motivational aspect of apps can be useful at the outset of behavior change, but, but that motivational boost doesn't necessarily persist over the long run. And we know that most behavior change takes longer than three months. So again, that might be a boredom factor and the need to tweak something. If someone likes working with an app and they're falling off of use of it, you know, what's a different app that might meet their needs so that they've got that you know, shiny, fun thing to uh, support them in whatever they're trying to do. So apps can be very helpful. 
But um, I guess my overall feeling is they're not the be all and end all of supporting behavior change. And it's really a, a matter of what works best for the individual. What kind of training and cr- credentials should a health coach have? Let me start um, with talking about credentialing, since having certain coaching credentials will reflect really having met certain knowledge, training and experience and skill requirements. So there are two different um, key coach credentialing bodies that I think a consumer should be aware of. Uh, one is the International Coach Federation, um, which we use, called by the acronym ICF, International Coach Federation. And the other is the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching, or ICHWC. So ICF is a generalist coach credentialing option that's been available since, I think, about 68, 1968. So it's been around a while now, and it's widely respected. And I think at this point there, I think I've read about 250,000 or more coaches credentialed by the International Coach Federation worldwide at this point. So consumer looking for a coach with that credential would see um, the abbreviations ACC or PCC or MCC after the coach's name. And that just indicates a level of credentialing, associate, professional, or master certified coach. You don't see the MCC very often because there are only something around 1,000 MCCs at this point at all. Um, But the ICF credential requires passing exam and then a specified amount of training uh, based on a program that the ICF has approved. And the amount of training feeds into what level you get, as well as the amount of mentoring, the uh, amount of experience coaching, and an evaluation of your recorded coaching sessions. So it's pretty thorough. Um, That credential has been considered the gold standard of credentials for a long time, but it is a generalist credential. A much newer credential that just became available in 2017 um, is specific to health and wellness coaches, and that was developed by the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching. So that there are only 55 programs right now who are approved um, to offer the training um, required for ICHWC. There's certain competencies and so forth that um, have to be included in the training. So you would need to go through one of those training programs. You also need a certain level ex- of experience. The training program itself includes passing um, a practical uh, exam, and then there's a written exam. And that exam is in conjunction with the National Board of Medical Examiners. So it's quite a serious situation. You have to go in and leave everything in a locker and it's monitored and everything. So that exam is taken very seriously. So a coach with the ICF or ICHWC credential, and some coaches like I have both, um, could work with clients on health and wellness issues, but the ICHWC credential, which is NBC, HWC, National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach, um, is the more specific credential. Right now, there are somewhere around 1,800 National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coaches, since it is a newer credential. But those would be the, yeah, those are the key 
credentials, I think, the ICF and the ICHWC. Where do you see the field of health coaching going in the future? Well, one likely direction, um, particularly for coaches with health and wellness credentialing, would be to have our services covered by insurance, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier. And that is something that the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching has on its agenda to work towards once they get the credential uh, process up and running and and um, more smooth. They're still approving programs and so forth, but really getting um, direct coverage, um, insurance coverage for health and wellness coaches would be one direction that I think we will see over the next, I don't know if it'll be five years, but certainly 10. Um, another direction is integrating the health coach role into um, primary care settings, like we mentioned earlier. Um, there are some articles about the value of that type of collaboration. Um, health coaches in integrative care settings are also incre- increasing and in some specialty settings as well. Um, I talked recently with uh, people in the office at the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching, and they said they receive calls from school districts and school nurses who want to have health coaches work with students. And we talked earlier about employers who are bringing health coaches on staff and insurance companies who employ health coaches. So those are some of the directions that I think will help really bring health and wellness coaching um, into being integrated aspect of the healthcare system as a whole. There's research on the benefits of health coaching for a wide variety of health risk factors and chronic illnesses. So it would be wonderful over time to see physicians meet with their patients and then provide a recommendation or referral to meet with a coach to help them address how uh, to implement changes that would better meet um, their health and wellness concerns and just promote uh, more wellness overall. How can a consumer find a good health coach? Well, that's a great question. I can give you my number. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As a first step, uh, a consumer could check with their employer or insurance company to see if either of them might offer health coaching as a benefit. So if so, they will um, presumably have vetted the coaches um, that will be providing that service to the consumer. By the way, I should mention that veterans can also check their local VA settings since the VA has been training and is continuing to train um, an increasing number of health coaches. So many veterans might find that that's um, a benefit that they can get through their healthcare settings. But if you don't have a health coach um, available through your employer or as an insurance benefit or as a VA, I think looking for that um, NBC HWC credential, that's the credential um, through the International Consortium Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaches, um, that's a really good way to identify um, a well-trained and experienced health coach. In fact, there's a directory on the ICHWC website, which I think is ICHWC.org, that at this point includes over 800 of the uh, 18 or 1900 um, coaches that they've credentialed. So that's a good place to look um, 
you know, to find someone. And while some people really want to work in person with a health coach, many coaches work virtually by phone or by video conferencing. So it's really not necessary to find a coach right in your specific geographic location. Any um, credentialed, experienced coach can be a good possibility. Uh, And knowing that they have training and or experience working with people with similar um, goals or similar health challenges uh, is something also to look for. And usually um, a coach with the ICHWC credential would have that uh, really good training and background in terms of that. But the other thing uh, I think is really important for a consumer to do is to really um, make sure that they feel comfortable with whatever coach they choose. So interview several because relationship is really a key factor in being able to be open and exploring uh, your visions, your values, and also the challenges that you face. You want to be comfortable with someone so that you can really um, look deeply into what you need to do to move forward on your own goals. So I think those would be some important things to consider. What advice would you have for someone who was looking to get into the health coaching field? If someone wanted to get into the health coaching field, I would really consider that they pursue a credential with the International Consortium for Health and Wellness Coaching because it is really the most um, focused training and credential. So there are, um, I think, 50, 55 um, training programs that they've approved at this point. And they're currently in the process of approving more. Um, Some some of the training programs are in what's called a transitional status because they originally had sort of a little bit of a lower bar to move into their credentialing process. And now um, the programs are moving into sort of a fully approved status. So any of the programs that um, ICHWC is working with in terms of that would be a great place to turn for training. And some of those are university-based. Where I teach at Maryland University of Integrative Health, we have a a program that can be done as a post-baccalaureate certificate or a master's. Um, And some are training programs that are not associated with um, academic um, institutions. So there are a wide variety of options. But I would look uh, on the ICHWC website to find one of the training programs or look at several of the training programs that work with ICHWC at this point. That is all the time we have for today. Dr. Amon, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. It really was my pleasure. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.